Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here at the Twitter offices in London, in Soho in London, with Bruce Daisley. He's the author of The Joy of Work and a fellow podcaster uh, with the hit podcast Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. He's the VP Emir for Twitter. Bruce, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming to me as well. <laughs> no problem. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. And your place is festooned with uh, posters of uh, female footballers, seems to be the the theme. Yeah, Women's World Cup. It's been very big for us. I think it's the biggest TV moment of the year as well. So normally when things are big on Twitter, I'm big on TV, they're big on Twitter. Right, yeah. Um, and I was just saying it's very close to my old stomping ground. I used to run a cabaret club in a former life, very close to where we're Sounds intriguing. <laughs> seated, <laughs> seated. But, so we're, we're here to talk about your book, which has done incredibly well. It's a bestseller. Um, and as I was saying to you before we came on air here, I I was just blown away with how well researched it was. You know, you, and you told me how many academic papers have you? Yeah, read? I mean, like I've just I, I I initially found myself printing academic papers, and then found myself, you know, I bought an iPad just to consume academic papers because I was just getting through so many of them. Just you know, a fascinating. It's just a, I think the the look. We've all got an interest in work. We've all got an interest in making work better. And and what struck me, the reason why I became fixated, was I learned that there was no shortage of academic research into work. Just very little of it reaches people in jobs. Right. Exactly. And and when you read it, you're struck by how yeah exactly how little of this gets. Mm get supplied and how, yeah. how it's not really part of our conversations is it you yeah know, that's we right. talk about oh there was the research on this and maybe we should do x it doesn't we don't bring any of that side yeah, knowledge in that's right to our conversations um and, and so tell us a little bit about the genesis for the book i mean i know you describe it in the book but just for our listeners here what what spurred the creation yeah, of it I, i've with? always been interested whether it was a bar that was working in or a hotel i was working in or an office I was working in, I was always interested in what made a good working environment, what made a bad working environment. And, and you know, um, I, was, I was just interested, is it down to bad bosses? Is it down to bad working conditions? Because it seemed paradoxically that I'd worked in good cultures that had bad bosses and I'd worked in good cultures that had had bad offices. So it never felt like it was a linear thing that improved the carpet and the work gets better or improved the boss and the work gets better. There seemed to be some sort of secret algorithm going on and so I was just I was I think from from being interested in the first hand simply because um, I was you know, the, my own working situations, I, I was just interested how we could make work feel more rewarding or less stressful, really. Right. And, and was that that spurred by your own experience of, of Yeah, work? directly, directly. So, you know, about three years ago, I think the, it's fair to say the workplace here went from feeling sort of effervescent, caffeinated, energised into feeling... I, I, I could just see sort of people were... Um, weary they looked dejected they looked worn down so it became a curiosity for me how we could make work better how we could make work feel work here feel less um dissatisfying how i could sort of re re um i guess recover people from burnout really okay that's what you found it was. It was. I think so. Out. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, by some estimations, half of all the modern workforce are burnt out. So, you know, these and the World Health Organization earlier this summer, they came out and said that burnout is real, that, you know, it genuinely appears to be different to something um, 
that we're familiar with seeing burnout seem to be a, a separate and, and real condition. Right. And, and were you feeling burnt out? Or is I it think just so. I think, that's, I think that's in truth probably what was going on. Is like I was projecting that uh, my team were feeling burnt out and I was projecting that onto... I was feeling it, but I was projecting it onto them. But most, most certainly, you know, we had a, one, one year here at Twitter where 40% of the London workforce left. And right. so, um, you know, the strange thing that happens there is like the opposite of musical chairs. No one wants to be the last one left seated. And, um, and so I, I, when you've got 40% of the workforce leave, each week is a leaving do. Mm. And, you know, you, you start getting this dissonance where everyone's thinking, wow, who's who's going next and each excessive resignation becomes alarming and so albeit the, there were multiple factors involved in that I think at that point I was particularly fascinated with wow what can any of us do to turn this round to make work more rewarding again and in you know if there were multiple factors that were the cause there were doubt, doubtless multiple factors that there were solution were the solution but I wanted at least in some part to contribute my part to the solution. Right, yeah. And were you running the, the office at the time? Yeah, or? I mean, you know, um, I, was, I was just handing over running the London office to our UK MD, Dara. But, I, you know, so I, I'm responsible for uh, our European business. And so, you know, I had offices in, across Europe. But, yeah, I was, I, was, I was indirectly responsible, yeah. And was London, was it the same across Europe or was it just London? Yeah, I mean, you know, I could only vividly describe London because I was yeah. here every day. And so, you know, you, you get a sense of what other offices are like, but the, the one that you're immersed in is the one you feel most viscerally. Right. So you start getting into this, you were researching papers and then did the idea of no, the book what, come? Or? No, what happened was I started doing a podcast. And so the podcast was this going to be this sort of excursion, six weeks excursion into fixing work culture. And then what happened was as I'd recorded four already and then I started contacting other people and everyone I contacted said, yes, but I can do it in two months. And so you know, I spent my evenings weeking reading things. Then I'd spend my evenings doing video calls with people in the US as the podcast and there's my weekends editing them and uh but you know so I went from I was going to do six to then I was doing 12 then I was only going to do 22 then okay I'll do a second series then you know I'm somewhere close to 80 episodes now Wow! Yeah, well, congratulations, and I know the work it takes. So, you know, yeah, and look, I edit it all myself. Yeah. You know, people often say it, it was. Um, it's been number one business podcast a few times, and it spent sort of relatively long amount of time there. And uh, people often say to me, "Oh, yeah, yeah, what's your production setup?" And you know, the production setup is me, and I voice the tops and tails in my wardrobe at home because you get a nicer acoustic quality and uh, I edit it myself you know often sitting in my underwear at the weekend so there's like literally no glamour I have made a tiny bit of money out of advertising on it but um, there's like no glamour at all I've probably paid for everything I've done but um, yeah it's like it's a labour of love really I think that's an interesting thing like when when you do it out of passion you know for, for me it doesn't feel like work yeah, I'm exactly the same. I, I, I do this if, almost if no one listened, right? It's, yeah, it's, yeah, that's it's, right. It's, it's like that, yeah. Okay, so the, so the book, it's structured around these, these three phases you described. There's recharge, sync, and buzz. 
can you tell us a bit about? Yeah, I mean the, the recharge part. The re- reason why a book on work culture, culture starts with these sort of twelve interventions to feel less exhausted yourself is because I went to one charity. I went to speak at one charity, and they invited me in. And someone said to me afterwards, "You know, we've tried to fix the culture here, and the way we tried to fix it was we invited everyone to a three-hour kickoff meeting, and no one came." And I thought that thought that was a perfect description of what a lot of modern work is like. That we we often pile things on when we want people to uh, adjust how they're working. We add more to their responsibilities. Work, you know, the demands become, become more onerous, and a lot of us feel exhausted and just just frazzled by our jobs. And so, for me. The first thing was, I wonder how we can feel less overwhelmed by our jobs. What's the first thing we can do there? And so the, these 12 interventions, some of them are as sort of prosaic as taking a lunch break. Some are about turning notifications off on your phone. Um, you know, they're, they're relatively straightforward. But what people often say is that once they've done them, actually, I do feel a bit happier. I, I do feel, you know, the, the woman I spoke to who um, was the evangelist for taking her lunch breaks, she described the sort of before and after. She said before she found herself constantly going through travel websites, constantly dreaming of quitting her job. And then she did this, uh, she did this series of trying to take a lunch break every day for a year. And she just felt like her life was more colourful. She was happier. She was less... She was less sort of willing herself away. It's just interesting how those things can impact us. Right. And, and of those recharge methods, which of you had the most success? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I'm, I'm a massive advocate for taking a good night's sleep and I'm sort of obsessive about that. And so that's one of the things there. Um, yeah, I mean, turning notifications off on your phone. The strange thing about turning notifications off on your phone is that the guy who wanted people to do that um, invited people to turn notifications off on their phone for a week and he couldn't get enough people to do it. A guy from Carnegie Mellon University. And so he then backed down. He said, OK, can you turn notifications off on your phone for a day? Two years later, half the people who did it still had their notifications turned off. So, you know, it seems to have this remarkable impact on us where we we just feel, you know, that workers stop pulling on our sleeve all the time. It's sort of stopped these insistent demands. So it seems to be remarkably powerful. If you say to someone, you can make your experience of work better by turning notifications off on your phone, people often argue, yeah, you don't know my clients or you don't know my boss. And, you know, they often sort of suggest that we that wouldn't work for them. But I think the evidence I've seen is that most people, if they try these minor adjustments, they do seem to make life better. Yeah, I mean, I went since I, I did it uh, over a year ago, and it, it, it transformed my life. It does completely transform my life. And, it, and it, the other one I did with it was also the, the sort of the email purge. And you talk about this in giving giving space for deep work. So I yeah. I won't hit my emails until midday. Right, that's, that's wow. my rule. Uh, gonna, uh, and I so that in combination with the notification notifications off does seem to give me a lot more space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good luxury to turn them off till lunchtime. But yeah, that's a, right. Sort of trying to find 60, 90 minutes at the start of the day to just try and get something of substance done. Subs does seem to reward with people where they feel more satisfied by their jobs. Right, yeah. Um, and the lunch break, the other thing I found interesting about the lunch break was this business of long tables, right? The, 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 
Yeah, really interestingly, um, so that was a data analysis, a work analysis firm went into different workplaces and they were really struck by some people seemed to have a better cohesive group than others. And they couldn't work out why. They went into, you know, this is a a fascinating organisation that tracks all manner of things that go on in workplaces. And they couldn't work out why. And they went into um, one workplace, uh, one one part of the workplace, and they realised the dining hall had small tables on one side and long tables on the other. And it directly impacted how people bonded. The people who naturally gravitated to the smaller tables, seemed to have a, a sort of smaller group of, of cohesive colleagues. And the people who sat on the longer tables, not that they sat down with people they knew or they didn't suddenly have 12 people, but they just would sit down to eat their sandwiches, to eat their pasta or whatever, and they would get chatting to people who from other departments. And that seemed to have a bearing on uh, the connectivity at work. So having longer tables seemed to forge more conversations at work. Right. And intuitively, that makes sense when we imagine a big mm. Italian family eating dinner yeah. and, the, and the cohesion and the fun and the laughter and the connectivity there. It, it, it makes sense. Yeah. Yet, so that's what struck me over and over in the book was so much of it seemed common sense when you st- step back from it and intuitive. And yet, yeah, we, 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 we find it radical almost in some cases. Yeah, and, and look, you know, I think there's a lot of things. The location of the coffee machine or the, the kettle seems mm. to have a big bearing on which teams bond with who. But, you know, in the same way that the size of the lunch tables or the where the coffee machine goes would often be like a trivial decision given to someone who, you know, isn't involved in organisational structure, whereas the analysis seems to be your location of the kettle has as much impact on which teams t- chat to which teams as the organogram. So, you know, you probably spend weeks and months plotting who reports into who and, and you know, how you want things structured, but you probably spend zero time deciding who sits near which kitchen. Yeah. And, yeah, that was the other theme that, that emerged for me in the reading the book is that it, it's almost like this idea of a, of a cultural architect came out. And almost at the role of the leader, yeah. you could think of as less as be, you know, we have many connotations of leader, but part of that role could be the, the architect of the workplace. It, it, Very much so, you know, like a, a conductor, an orchestra, yeah. orchestra conductor trying to think of how these, <laughs> these things can integrate together. Because often when you see people talking about work culture, uh, and no doubt, you know, I'm, I'm doing a new series of my podcast right now, and there's a lot of stuff where, People will talk about, oh, there were three pillars of their culture, or there were these four values that they had to adopt. And, you know, I'm getting into far more of that on my, uh, on my new series of my podcast. But um, often it's simple things like which teams chat to who or, you know, are you on a vast open plan and how that impacts your day to day and your sense of exhaustion or whatever. So, yeah, there are a lot of things to consider. What I find is that the more consideration you give to these things the more that you can adapt to them you know the science from work for working from home is i think it's fair to say mixed the evidence so i I did a talk at the bbc and someone came up to me and said i think your attitude to working from home is incredibly old-fashioned i said far from it i don't have an attitude to working from home i'm just presenting you the evidence that is has been documented and my opinion is based on that evidence and so, you know, I, rec- I fully recognise that working from home 
enable some people to be in the workforce that they couldn't be in the workforce before. But I also know that United Nations say that the stress levels of people who work from home are 70% higher than the stress levels of people who work in normal workplaces. And, you know, we can't, we can't ignore those factors. The critical thing for me would be you enter intentionally, so you go, okay, right, number one, having more people enabled to join the workforce seems an incredibly positive thing. However, we know that, that can, the incidence of that can be stressful. So what, therefore, can we do to, to combine the two? How can we go from either or to and, right? That, that to me, is the fascinating thing. And if someone stands up and calls you out for presenting the evidence, then you're never going to get to the right conclusion. Um, and so, you know, so I, I, my feeling on that is it's much better to know the evidence so you can try and get to a more progressive workplace. Right. And I saw that the, the researchers, I hadn't heard the stress one, but also with software engineers, productivity went up if they were having more conversations. Precisely that, you know, I, th I think what we know is that every time people have a conversation in the office, it's in service of the work they do getting better. So, you know, if you and me are putting up shelves and you come and you say to me, oh, Bruce, that shelf just, you know, it seems a little bit wonky there. That conversation is a piece of feedback that enhances the job I've done on these shelves. And if we don't have that conversation, therefore, the quality of the, my shelving is, is lower. And similarly, it's exactly the same. People, when they're co-located, tend to talk about five times more than when they're remotely located. So as long as you know that, then you can say, look, in the same way that some offices might have a daily stand-up, we're going to just have a daily five-minute phone call. I'm literally going to phone you while I'm walking back from the sandwich shop, one more. I'm literally going to phone you, check in, and we'll just chat through three things. And you can get around that, and that daily connectivity seems to be helpful. But unless you know that science, then you avoid that daily conversation, and therefore, you know, invisibly, work has got a little bit worse. Yeah, and, and I think it is invisible, isn't it? Because when we're working alone, we're not aware that we're doing anything that may not align with what the rest of our teammates yeah. are doing, right? Because we're... we're and hunkered down and we've, we think we're being productive because we, we're, we're yeah. cracking through our to-do list. And, and for me, one of the things that's missed, you, you mentioned the second section of the book is called Sync. And it's all about how human beings seem to forge a connection between each other that is often invisible. It's like this sort of almost wholly intangible thing, but it's real. So, you know, one of my favourite examples is that there was a piece of work studying 40,000 unmarried couples who lived in, in different cities. And they wanted to know uh, which couple stayed together at the end of a year because, you know, they wanted to know, was it you've got to visit each other once a month? You've got to visit each other once a week. What was it? What they discovered, it wasn't any of those things. The couples who stayed together living in different cities in America, so this is long distance relationships, the couples who stayed together were the ones who phoned each other every day to talk about trivial things. Right. Boom. That is fascinating because... It suggests that there's a human connectivity. There's a sync that f bonds us together. And probably, if you were looking at those people's relationships and someone said, oh, yeah, I WhatsApp her twice a, twice a day. Well, it appears that WhatsApping someone in that scenario does not perform the same function as picking up the phone and chatting to them. So just a good reminder to phone your mom every week. And But, you know, these things have got, like... Um, albeit invisible, but they've got a powerful connective tissue to them. Yeah. And you talk in the book, I can't remember with the researcher you cite, but 
about this idea of actually having this conversation about love and connection and friendship and companionship in the workplace and and that actually becoming part of our conversation and our vocabulary and it, it can feel kind of icky to have those conversations right yeah now. yeah there's a researcher called Sigal Barside from from Wharton University who talked about this thing called companionate love and the, I guess the reason why it's, it's sort of a hot topic Netflix go out of their way in their culture document which has become this iconic thing of saying that um, Netflix are a team not a family and they assert that you know no matter how badly your mum burns the Christmas dinner you're never going to fire your mum so you know the, the idea that this is a that a family and a team are the same is, is an illusion and so that that became for a long while sort of the the defining quality. But if you if you look at high performing teams, actual sport teams, quite often they talk about feeling this love. Or you know you, you look at firefighters who've got an incredible rapport amongst themselves, who literally are laying their life down on, on the line for each other. And you ask them what their relationships like, and they'll say, yeah, it feels like a family. It feels like a family. And so Sigal Barside wanted to understand. Is it a family or is it a team? Is it like this semi-distant thing? And the, the way she described it, she said that, you know, she calls it companionate love, that it's not a direct copy for the way we might see familial love or, or you know, um, or sort of our love for our partner, but it's got a highly connective part to it. And the interesting thing she says is that when you observe companionate love, it isn't at the expense of accountability. So it's not like all of a sudden everyone gets into a loving and their quality of work goes down or complacency sets in. Far from it. You know, when, pe- when firefighters feel that they're laying out on the line for each other, they are very diligent about not exposing each other to risks. Mm. Right. The... The next part of your, your well, we've talked about, well, is there anything more to say about sync? You know? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I just think it's a sort of magical thing that you almost can't, um, often you can't see the benefit of, but you observe the absence of it. So, you know, there's, there's a really interesting trend that's going on right now. It's sort of in, increasing in incidents where a lot of workplaces are moving to hot desks. So, you know, probably the first cost saving was about you know, 15 years ago where everyone moved to open plan. And the new one is now they've realized that <laughs> most desks sit on empty all day. So they're saying, OK, we're going down to 70 percent desk space. There's only desks for 70 percent of the workers because it's another way to save money. And what you observe in companies that do that is they say over time, they say, the connection between people who work here seems to have reduced. People no longer feel part of something that they want to be part of. Um, and so as a consequence of that, you know, they, they don't feel a sync with their colleagues. They don't feel a bond with their colleagues. So, you know, that became my fascination, that the fact that we do forge a, a, an emotional codependency with people we work with, which is like human synchronization. Right. And have you done, so at Twitter, have you, have you got your own office? Is it fixed? I mean, what have you done with your work I have no office. Um, does Jack have an office? I don't think Jack, I, I don't think anyone here has an office. Certainly, certainly no one in, in Europe has an office. So you've not gone as far as to implement the, the thinking there? Uh, well, look, you know, because I don't think the reality is that anyone's going to go back to open plan uh, to, to closed plan offices. So, you know, closed plan offices are at the very least three times more expensive than open plan offices. It's just not a reality of the 
of the world right now. We do have a lot of phone booths here, so tiny little space about the size of a desk chair where you can go in and sit in total isolation. And every time we put phone booths in, they're always full all the time. So, you know, we, we've gone to more private spaces. But, you know, you've got to be realistic. It's anyone uh, saying we should go to close plan offices, it's just, it's financially impossible. No one's going to be able to do it. So it's not a question of sort of implementing those things. It's more how can we accommodate the realities of modern work, I think. Right. Um, so well, I suppose, yeah, one compromise is to give people closed spaces, yeah. booths. Yeah, and, and there's loads of evidence that people seem to do their best work when they get the opportunity to mix, um, to balance being around people and privacy. Right, right. Um, so let's talk about buzz. Buzz, yeah, let's do it. So, yeah, what do you mean by buzz? Yeah, I'm just, you know, I think specifically there are certain times where you can observe working teams where someone will say that time there was a real hum there was a real buzz there was like there was almost a a sort of a, a audible energy to the way that team worked and so i just became fixated with understanding if that was the case and in fact you know people like margaret heffernan very famous british ceo she described how some of her best workplaces seemed to truly have this almost auditory burst to them. Um, so th- there are people who say these things. You know, the the guy who invented uh, the the tracking badges that I, I mentioned earlier, he um, he said that you can almost observe that you know the workplaces that seem to be highly f- functioning seem to have a burst to them. So I wanted to just understand what are the components of that because. If you've ever worked in a place where you've got it and then you work somewhere that hasn't got it or, in my case, lost it, how do you get it back? How do you get back to forging that connective, highly functioning, almost most creative? How can you get back to that? Yeah. And and what are some of the ways that we can get back to having buzz? Yeah, you know, the, the components, I think, are the most elevated forms of worker culture are things like... Um, Probably the, the things that psychologists would describe as uh, psychological safety and uh, positive affect. Positive affect being part of positive psychology, where the fundamental belief of positive psychology is the decisions we make are different based on the mood we're in. Do you believe that that's true? Do you believe? Do you believe? <laughs> Absolutely. You, yeah, yeah, it's true, right? It's more like open. I mean, when she described it, you're more open, you're more creative, and that completely resonates. Absolutely. The you know. The mood, you, you know resolutely that there'll be people who catch them in a different mood because you want a different decision. Right, we know intuitively that certain people's decisions are influenced by the, the mood we're in. And so consequently, we need to be aware of that. And we need to be aware that, um, you know, the, the way that, so that's called positive affect. And probably the reason why it's particularly a particular interest is because a lot of us are in a state of negative affect by this perpetual hurry sickness, this sort of like um, the fact that we're beset with constant interruptions, we can't get anything done, and it's negative affect. And so consequently, we're going to make worse decisions, we're going to make worse judgment calls than if we were in a, a good frame of mind. 
really relevant for us. And uh, the second one is psychological safety. And psychological safety is whether in your workplace you're given the benefit of the doubt. Does your boss give you the benefit of the doubt? And if we believe that if we make a mistake and our boss gives us the benefit of the doubt, it changes the way that we, we make decisions, we, we do things. Because we can do things with a bit more... You know, if you're If you're a sports person... And you know that if you go for something audacious, you're going to be blamed. You won't go for something audacious. I chatted to someone, a really lovely conversation. I chatted to someone who used to work at the advertising agency Saatchi and Saatchi in their heyday. They almost bought HSBC. They almost bought the Midland Bank in, in their like remarkable business, British business at the time. And, uh, and uh, Saatchi and Saatchi, he said their philosophy was when it came to pitching for business, he said their philosophy was first or last, meaning they would they would rather they would rather be last than second, because so he said we had some ex- spectacular blow-ups where we just had a mad idea we took a mad idea in there because we knew the client would either say that was remarkable like wow what a sort of flight of adventure you we never thought someone would come up with that or they would go that's the worst thing. Please delete our number off your phone. And, you know, one way or the other, they were, they were, and, and I thought, wow, what a remarkable thing, you know, first or last. That's such a sort of an interesting philosophy. Right. And that's, and that's when people feel 100% safe to take That's that right. Pun. You know, yeah. that's it. Because then if someone's sitting there thinking, you know what, I've got this slightly out there idea but you don't want to be the person who suggests that, you know, they print the Financial Times on pink paper. If they, if, you know, th- when you stand up and suggest it, people go, that was terrible. Let's fire that person. You, you want to sort of, you want yeah. to know that a, a, a wild out idea is not going to be blamed. Right. And so thinking back to your time in the, the London office when, you know, you, you, you noticed this, what, what were the things that you started to do to have people feel safer? Yeah, I, mean, I think the, the things that I've tried to do here is that, you know, recognising that you can't, for, for example, the, the, you can't instruct people what to do. So, for example, the science of taking lunch breaks is remarkable and almost unarguable. But uh, if you tell someone they have to take a lunch break, all of the benefits you get are eliminated. Right, I read that, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, if you sort of stand at people's desk saying, right, that's it, I want you all out, you know, get to the park now, actually, anxiety levels go up. And so I felt like the best thing I could possibly do here was model behaviours rather than order behaviours. So, for example, I'm resolutely of the belief that you shouldn't work more than 40 hours a week. But the best way to implement that is to ensure that we never promote someone where the main reason for them being promoted is they work every night, they work all weekend. So consequently, their bosses know, you know, if if Paul's up for promotion or, or Sarah's up for promotion and uh, their reasons are they work all the hours God sends, that's not a reason for promotion. Right. So, um, so it's trying to model behaviours rather than rather than mandate behaviours, I think. And is there any area where you still kind of catch yourself and you're like, oh, you know, Bruce, I, I, I sort of I, I damaged the safety there. Is there any, is there any, or lessons you've learned? Uh, I mean, look, you know, we had a, we had something that went wrong yesterday and, you know, the, when you, and it was, you know, it was a, it was a bad thing that went wrong. And actually the first thing I was thinking was the, the welfare of the person whose mistake it was. Um, 
because it's, you know these things can feel deeply intense when you're the person responsible. So I, I resolutely don't think I've got the answers to everything, but I'm sort of as a work in progress. I'm trying to listen to some of the evidence. Right. Okay. Um, and that so that was your that was your instinct. There was how do I have this person not yeah. feel this pressure? Right. Yeah. Not feel this intensity. Yeah. And so how did you how did you do that? Did you take them to one you know take them from one side? How did you counsel them? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, we've. I just before this, I, I came out of a conversation where we were talking about uh, what happened, what we're going to do, and there were other parties involved. So, um, yeah, just you know, making sure it, it's more often than not, it's it's probably not the first hour. It's like the second day. It's the second week. It's like it's the word before the weekend. It's things like that, really. Right. Yeah, I see. And and the positive affect side of this. It, do you do you have any rituals or anything you've taken on to have you be in a in a better frame? Yeah, in a the, better... the interesting thing about positive affect is sort of you know. So one of the remarkable things is that, for example, your doctors. Um, one of the pioneering bits of work was done where a woman gave a bag of sweets to doctors. So these are people who've made it their life's work to train to be vocational experts. And giving a bag of sweets to doctors changed how they did their job. They were more thorough with their diagnosis. They they reached a more accurate conclusion. Right. So so even the mood of doctors can impact the job they do. Remarkable. And so the but the the consequence for work is that um, the, we, we can't just bribe people into that. So you can't just turn up and give people a smoothie every day. You can't just turn up every day and give people delightful, you know, trays full of food or cupcakes. It's far more nuanced than that. We need to feel surprised. We need to feel inspired. And I think that's a critical thing. We need to, thinking about how can you make work more rewarding seems to be a big thing to do rather than how can you make people be happier. Sort of, a, you're aiming for happiness obliquely rather than directly. Right. Yeah, and you touch on the the research about intrinsic versus extrinsic mm. motivation. So this idea that you want to enable people to. to yeah, find and it was only chatting to someone yesterday. The evidence on that is amazing. But you know, so the, probably the most graphic example of intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation is that you can find school kids or preschool kids who love drawing. And you can say to these school kids, I'm going to give you rewards for doing the best drawings. And you, you observe them a week later, their enjoyment of drawing has gone down and their, their drawings are less imaginative. Basically, by rewarding for something, people, rewarding people for doing something they love doing, it takes the joy out of it. Wow. You know, artists who do commissions report feeling less satisfied with their work and then artists who do work and then people buy that work. So um, our motivation is such a fragile, tiny little flower inside us. We've, we need to protect it. Right. And, and these very subtle ways of encouraging and rewarding are not, not, not these if-then rewards. If you do this, then you'll get the positive evaluation. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, if them rewards can work, if something is heuristic, if something is, if you are paid more for making more burgers, then then making more burgers will be something that earns that. But if you're, if you, um, if you try to reward someone for having better ideas, they don't double their number of ideas. So these things are so balanced, I think. Yeah. And you also talk about the importance of, creating 
space for people to explore these ideas and the, yeah. the hack weeks. You do, the Twitter still does a hack. Yeah, we do, I mean, it's like a very big part of our DNA. We're just coming up to one now twice a year. So, um, yeah, and people love it because people love the idea that maybe their idea will, you know, someone might have joined Twitter to be an engineer on something or a product designer or, you know, you know someone to work in accounts. And this is a week where anyone can come up with an idea and join a team and, and so consequently you have people who are, you know, people in, in sales finance, but they'll come up with an idea for something and they're, you know, they can contribute to something that might become part of the core Twitter right. app. And there's quite a few examples in the book where it, it, it's been realized Absolutely. In, in the product or in, in, in Some the business. Some of the biggest things yeah. we've done in the last three years have come from Hack Week. Which is interesting because I've heard other reports of hack. Well, hack, maybe this is the difference, but hack days where a load of great ideas get created and then they they go nowhere. You know, yeah. there's not the follow up and they don't and they don't get implemented. Yeah, it, it sounds like you're doing something different with them. Do you think it's what do you think makes the difference for them actually turning into realised? Um, quite often we do them around things that people are about to come to think of. So you know, so it might be, say for Twitter, we know that. Most social media is witnessing that people are doing fewer original posts, but they're having more conversations about those posts. So then you say, oh, conversation seems to be a big part then, that we need to be thinking more about that than doing original posts. Right, so the, this hat week, come and tell us, we want ideas about um, time of day, because you know, you're not going to get a conversation going if everyone's asleep, or conversations. So these two restrictions applied there, come and give us your ideas. And so consequently, it's things that the business is thinking about already. Okay. People are allowed free form to come up with solutions around those things, even though there's slight limitations about what we allow you to work on. And that's, so that's how it works. Right. And, it, and those ideas are then likely to get investment. They like to get support from the, higher, the management. And yeah, the, because, because they're sort of themes that the company's thinking about right now. Mm. No, I get that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, the other thing that you talk about coming, sorry, you talk about collective intelligence in the, in the book, which which I, and I'd read the research on that before. Um, and so, a couple of things that strike me there was one that I hadn't heard before was it, it's our, in terms of being a good contributor to a collective, our ability to read each other's emotions was important, right? And also the the split of female male yeah. Yeah. which must be interesting for an engineering company right yeah um what have you sort of taken away from that research that was done by anita williams woolley and, and sandy pentland and um i think the interesting thing that they observed that people who can read who can empathize with each other seem, <coughs> seem to work better together and so the gender bias was just that generally women are more empathetic than men. So consequently, if a room can read each other, if you don't have a boss that monologues, if people respond to each other, it seems to mean that they um, they produce better results. And the, the Anita Williams Woolley research was interesting because it was it was on very different problem solving. So it was, you know, some of them were logic problems, some of them creative problems, some of them were sort of negotiations and. This empathy seemed to be an important quality to a team's collective intelligence. Um, interesting, they use a test called the reading the mind in the eyes test, which is a Simon Baron-Cohen test, 
which was designed actually to measure autism because autistic people typically find it hard to read other people's emotions. And so this test was developed for that. And they found that people who perform well in this, reading the emotions of, of these eyes, seem to be good team members. Look, at the very least, it's quite a fun exercise to do with your team. Uh, the Anita Williams Woolley, uh, or, or the, the Simon Baron Cohen reading the mind in the eyes Which test. He's the psychologist, not the comedian. <laughs> yeah, I think he's the brother of the comedian. Right, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, coming back um, briefly to psych- psychological safety, I, I thought this must be an interesting challenge for Twitter, right now especially, um, because there's this idea that we we ha- we need to be respectful for, for, for others' opinions and we need to create this this safe space for people. But is there ever a risk where that um, comes into conflict with uh, being being an environment where all opinions are valued? Um, and and I, you know, I was thinking in terms of the, the challenges that you have, sort of culturally with Twitter, and and who's allowed, you know, who's allowed a voice on the platform and who isn't. Um, we want to make it safe for people, but we want it to be open for all opinions, which may mean some people feeling unsafe if they're threatened by a particular viewpoint. How, how do you, I suppose, how do you negotiate that that trade-off, or indeed, do you see it as a trade-off? Uh, so I can't relate that back to work, so I'm just going to focus on yeah. Twitter. For yeah. Um, look, you know, I think it's what we think about all the time. We we probably start from a perspective of thinking that more conversation is better than less conversation. That, you know, probably the best way to resolve something isn't to silence someone, but is to listen to them. And generally, I think this, there's a lot of interesting work done by Jonathan Haidt. And Jonathan Haidt, I don't know if you've seen his book, The Coddling of the American Mind, which is all about how we tend to become more resilient, more robust, and just more able to withstand shocks in life when we expose ourselves to differences of opinion. And so Jonathan Haidt's take is that, that you know, actually people have become, um, they've become emboldened by seeing, you know, adversity. And I think we start from a perspective of allowing that. Clearly, though, you've got an issue where if some of the people you're trying to permit to, to have a voice, their philosophy is they want to silence other people. That is especially difficult because, you know, ultimately no one wants to give a platform to people who are opposed to the norms of free speech and democracy. So it's, it's, it's you know, these, these an old truism uh, which is beware simple answers to complicated problems. And, you know, that's it couldn't be truer when it comes to trying to deal with some of the things that we face in terms of policing what conversation is allowed on Twitter. Right. But I think what I'm hearing from what you're saying there is one of the things you're looking at is, is this person expressing an idea or is this person looking to shut somebody down? Is that one of the the, the ways you look at this? Um, look, I mean, I, I think the lesson in the last two or three years is that there's also a third factor, which is there is someone whose intention isn't to express an opinion or to win people over. It's to try and subvert the conversation. So bad actors who aren't 
who they're proposing to be. And they represent sort of less than 1% of 1% of anyone who's on the Twitter platform. But, you know, they're trying to present themselves as someone they're not. And they're trying to subvert the conversation. And so that's it. You know, I think we made the mistake historically of trying to see things as people giving their opinions. But there's also a third thing, which is that, you know, these aren't real people in some of the cases. And they're just people trying to damage the quality of what's going on or ruin other people's experiences. So I think that's why it's so immensely complex. Right. But even as you're speaking, I know you said you, you, you couldn't necessarily relate it to inside work, but I, I think there's, there is a corollary there inside work. I think that there is a level in group scenarios in the workplace where it is some people's intention is simply to undermine, consciously or subconsciously, others yeah, in it. the group, right? There was some work looking at toxic colleagues, and, and they, they set out the, the, the... I think the people who did the research thought, oh, you know, it must be... 5%, maybe 4% of people who have got a toxic colleague. They went out and they did a survey and I think 70% of people said that they had a toxic colleague. So, you know, these things, the, the bad elements of work are certainly more present than we would probably like to admit. Yeah, but you could even see how that gets complex because is somebody writing somebody off as toxic because they don't like their... Exactly, they disagree or, with them. Or, or exactly that. genuinely because they've got some... Yeah. They've identified some pathology in that individual. Exactly. Yeah, no, it, it, I could... I mean, I have complete empathy for where you guys, as a company, now sit within the yeah. culture on that particular topic. It's, it's a very, yeah, very like complex one. Very complex, and it's something that the human race is only now having to grapple with, right? Well, and and I think you know, we social platforms never fully realised the extent of you know how bad actors were trying to subvert things. I think until a lot later than probably yeah, these things came onto the agenda a lot later. Mm. Which is actually a theme elsewhere in the book when you talk about the fact that we've been given all of these tools or given them, you know, we've developed all of these tools and we're not quite sure, right, how, how to work with them. That's part exactly. of the issue here, yeah. Um, email being one of them. And email is like the curse yeah. of modern work, so absolutely. And, and our ability to create meetings as easily as we can and then that dominates. Well, that's it. And, you know, the, the average British person spends two days a week in meetings. The average manager spends three days a week in meetings. So we've, one way or the other, meetings are a very big part of the work experience now. Yeah. And what, what is your, what, is there anything you've done, done there in terms of the culture within Twitter to, to, Again, I mean, look, you know, I'm responsible for some meetings. So in those instances, I try to, you know, we cancelled our Monday meeting, which is the meeting of death. But we, we, we cancelled our Monday meeting this week because we just didn't have a, enough to discuss. So it's like it's a, it's a joy to get, you know, an hour return to you. So, you know, it's about trying to reduce the impact of meetings as much as possible. All right. So the question I like to ask a lot of my guests, Bruce, this is the Being Human show, is for you, Bruce, what, is it? what, what does being human mean to you? Uh, you know, presuming good intentions in other people and, uh, and, and laughing for me, sort of, you know, emotion and laughter, really. Right. Which again is, you talk about in the book, right? The mm. importance of laughter mm. and how, how that, how the role that plays in cohesion of groups and well, all sorts of things. So, yeah. Good. Well, thank, thank you. you very much. I'll let you get to your, next meeting um so for those who want to learn more the book is the joy of work 30 ways to fix your work culture and fall in love with your job again and the podcast is eat sleep work repeat
Thank you for having me. Thank you, Bruce. It's been awesome. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.